Greetings, Race Community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Stephen Rodriguez, who is the Associate Vice President for Development at Brandeis University and somebody who I have interfaced with uh, pretty consistently in a variety of different settings over the course of the 10 plus year journey I've been on here in Evertrue. And uh, that all being said, I'm excited to get to know you uh, in a new way here today, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Brent. Excited to be here. So just to uh, hook you all to stick with us through this episode, I will say that Stephen and I reconnected as we uh, identified our sort of shared interest in this world of Web3, NFTs, and philanthropy. Uh, and so we are going to spend a little bit of time uh, riffing on that today. But before we do, uh, just wanted to uh, give Stephen a chance to introduce himself. And frankly, uh, one of the things I've been really enjoying from our candidate, uh, from our uh, guests is to understand uh, what really inspired your own higher education journey, which in your uh, it, uh, case, I know has some musical uh, undertones uh, or overtones perhaps. And, uh, and so tell me a little bit about Stephen in high school. Who was that guy? Uh, what was he into? And uh, tell me about your college choice. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Well, again, Brent, thank you for Thank you for having me. Anytime I get the chance to talk about myself, I will I will jump on it. So <laughs> looking forward to it. So yeah, I grew up in uh, a little town called Hillsborough, Oregon, um, which is outside Portland. And you know, I could say that I grew up on a farm, but that wouldn't be a true statement. But grew up on a wheat farm that was farmed by somebody else. Um, and so you know, out out in the country. Um, my parents are both in education, so that's been something that's been ingrained in me from a from an early age. My mom was a kindergarten teacher. In fact, she was my kindergarten teacher, um, so I did have to call my mom Mrs. Rodriguez. Um, and my dad was a assistant vice principal and then superintendent for our town. So education has really been at the core for me. Um, but my path into music was sort of serendipitous. I knew that I wanted to play an instrument and I grew up listening to my dad play um, uh, Dave Brubeck on the weekends and Charlie Parker. And I just thought the saxophone was the coolest sounding instrument out there. So played the saxophone, you know, all throughout junior high school, high school. Um, my teacher, Mr. Coop, um, sent a couple students to Lawrence University, which is a small liberal arts college in the Midwest in Appleton, Wisconsin, that has a conservatory of music. Um, attached to it, much like Oberlin. And it was the, the the best school for me. It it aligned my passions for music while also expanding on my um, liberal arts background um, and, and interest in just being well-rounded. So it was a, a wonderful school for me. I started my uh, sophomore year as a phone-a-thon caller and called for my entire time there working in the development office during winter breaks, summer breaks, et cetera. Um, but for me, Lawrence really opened up my eyes as to the opportunities that exist within higher ed, things that I never imagined being able to do. Um, I was able to do because of that experience. I love it. Uh, I grew up about two hours southwest of Appleton, Wisconsin. So a uh, big move from Oregon to the sort of central Wisconsin area, um, other than the accents and the, the cheese and the Packers, what, uh, what stood out from that, uh, that, I don't know, cultural immersion in the upper Midwest, if you will. Yeah. I mean, the people, it, it is 
the nicest people on the planet. Um, you know, everyone was willing to to go the extra mile to help. Um, you know, growing up sort of out of a city as a kid, I didn't walk down the sidewalk and, and say hi to people. Um, so being in a place like Appleton, it, it really opened opened my eyes as to what a community is. Um, and you felt that. I mean, some of the jokes I make living in Boston now where, you know, you stop at a stop sign to take a turn, you get honked at uh, if, if you actually stop. Whereas in Wisconsin, like everyone stops and waves each other on and then no one's no one goes anywhere for five minutes because just how kind everybody is. I think um, it took me a lot to sort of learn that honking is a form of communication here uh, in the Northeast, that it's not always, uh, you know, out of anger or trying to send a message, but uh, the thought of honking at somebody in a like upper Midwestern small town, it is next level offensive. And so it definitely took me a while to adjust to, to that part of uh, the New England communication style. I would wholeheartedly agree. I think if, if uh, you know, once ever true, um, continues to be successful and you hang up your hat in retirement, your next business idea is a, a horn that has four settings. One that's like a, a gentle horn and all the way from, from gentle to angry at some point. Um, that's a good business idea. I like that. That's sort of uh, the intersection of music and innovation right there, Stephen. So uh, Lawrence University, though, uh, love learning about new universities. I don't know much about it other than what you've shared today. 12,000, maybe 15,000 alumni or so. So very small, tight-knit community. What was it like? Um, what response did you get as a student caller? I'm sure you had the whole spectrum, but uh, we have often said student calling has been the gateway drug for many AVPs of development out there. So tell me about that experience, what stood out. Yeah, definitely. And this would this would go back to like the, the late 90s, not to age myself, but people did answer their phones. People did not have cell phones at that point. Um, so like the, the big innovation in calling at that point was caller ID. And, you know, do we say Lawrence University? Do we list the phone number? That was the big technical decision at the time. We still used our fingers and paper cards to dial. Um, so what I remember about the experience was just being able to ask those questions. I had no idea what I wanted to do, you know, with my life at that point. I, I knew that music was going to be central to it. I knew that education would always be something that I would be close to. Um, and so it was just a wonderful opportunity to connect with people that had a, a shared interest, a shared value system where I could just ask questions of, you know, tell me about your path. You're a doctor now, but you studied philosophy at Lawrence. How did you get there? So I just loved having those questions, having those conversations and, and asking those questions. And so you're both pursuing music, but also getting exposure to philanthropy. Um, tell me a little bit about the choices you made coming out of college. Yeah, definitely. So I, I knew, you know, probably towards my, my senior year at Lawrence that I, I wanted to get a master's degree at that point. Um, and so the director of jazz studies at Lawrence eventually came to be the director of jazz studies at New England Conservatory of Music, uh, Ken Shackhorst, and he's, he's still there today. Um, and so I knew that I was going to continue in that vein. So I found myself, that's how I got to Boston was, was coming to NEC to get my master's in jazz studies, um, and learned so much during that, that period of time. But interestingly enough, a, a thread that carried forward was continuing to raise money for nonprofits. And so 
the job that I had for my first year and a half was uh, calling for the um, for the Boston Ballet, doing season ticket sales and and fundraising, the Handel and Haydn Society, and the Huntington Theater. Um, and then eventually, I did I did work for NEC as well as a as a student caller. So it's something that that really carried me forward all the way through graduate school. And so you got out to New England, and then you told people that you grew up in a small town outside of Portland. And 100% of people assume Maine. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, And uh, when did you sort of start to think through, like, was music going to be a professional path um, versus, hey, maybe this philanthropy thing could be not just, uh, you know, a side hustle to pay the bills as a student, for example, but maybe, maybe this could be a career path. Yeah. No, it's a great question. I, I would say, like, the the thought process that I went through is that you know I, I uh, right after grad school I I did have a adventure and worked on cruise ships for eighteen months playing in the show band um, an incredible experience to do at twenty two or twenty three um, I mean give me the highlight like what was the the best trip the best show you got I mean that's awesome yeah I mean it, it after a certain point they're all the same you know it is it is Groundhog Day because every cruise is the same exact music to a click track um, with no variation. So after like your second or third month, you're pretty much on autopilot. But uh, what I did is take advantage of the locations that we went to and I became a a certified uh, scuba diver. And I probably went on close to 200 dives all throughout the Caribbean during those 18 months. Every time we landed in Cozumel, I was the first one, first one off the boat, last one back doing three or four dives a day. What so is that one was, place we should all put on our bucket list to dive in the Caribbean? What stands yeah, out? The, the reef at Cozumel is pretty amazing because um, it goes right off into the abyss. And so if you're adventurous, you can go right out there to the edge and look down into nothing. Um, you can see eagle rays, spotted rays, turtles, pretty amazing. Um, so when I think about my my highlight on the on the cruise ships, it it really was um, those kinds of experience that I got to see the people I got to meet. Um, but what it really did tell me from a, a profession perspective is that I wanted music to be my passion and not my profession. Um, I wanted to perform the types of music that I wanted to in the way that I wanted to, and not have the stress of having to think about it as a profession and a livelihood. Um, so I came back to came back to Boston. I still had my apartment that I was subletting, um, and I found this job at Berkeley College of Music that had this alignment with my music passion, and it was a development coordinator role. You know, doing gift entry stewardship and uh, working with the associ- the assistant vice president with her calendar, um, and it was the perfect fit. It was it lit that fire for me again that. Um, I might be able to make a bigger difference for things that I care deeply about by not being a musician. And this alignment with Berkeley's mission was just phenomenal. The new president at the time, Roger Brown, you know, was an amazing leader to learn from. Um, the senior vice president of development uh, at Berkeley, her name is uh, her name is Debbie Berry, but she's since retired. You know, she took me under her wing to some degree and, and, and helped me show, you know, what, what you can do for a career in development. Um, and it turned out it's such a small world that uh, Debbie's husband's sister was my junior high school librarian. And 
to go way back in time, um, me and a friend in junior high school sold candy to raise money to buy books for the library. We would give a packet to a friend and say, come back with $20, you get to keep the rest. And then we'd go down to Powell's Books in Portland and buy books that Joey, this Joey Price, Joey and I wanted to read in the library that were, you know, uh, science fiction, Piers Anthony books back then. Um, so it, it's a really, really small world. And, and um, I learned so much from my time at, at Berkeley. So I was thinking about your time at Berkeley because it was almost, it was uh, 11 years ago last month that I first cold prospected you as a, uh, now I was maybe six months in, if that, to Evertrue. And I'm, I'm looking at the email that I sent you uh, as a cold outreach. I said, a friend of mine passed along your contact information and she thought you might be interested in hearing more about our platform. I don't know if that's true. I actually think that a friend did pass along your info. I can't remember who it was, or maybe that was just my like, I'm going to be in town. Do you want to get together? Uh, <laughs> no, um, but we did happen to be exactly two blocks from the Berkeley College of Music at that moment. Um, and then I believe shortly uh, thereafter, you, uh, you made your next move to Boston University. But I'm now just looking at like how many times I... Uh, you know, I reached out to you. We did uh, actually get together for coffee, which was uh, something I really appreciated. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, but it's just funny to kind of think about, you know, how <laughs> these journeys can evolve and uh, how we're able to reconnect today. But I thought you'd appreciate that. Yeah, no, most definitely. I remember that you came in with a uh, your the iPad in your jacket pocket. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> and and showed it. me Evertrue at that point. Of, it was you know, the iPad. What the iPad mini, it fit right in that blazer <laughs> pocket. So I made sure to uh, never leave home without it. But, um, um, but just, you know, tell me about that transition. I mean, on one hand, you were just starting your career uh, at the Berkeley College of Music. And um, at the same time, you had quite a bit of fundraising experience dating back almost a decade at that point. So you're sort of a first year employee with nine years of, uh, of experience. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it really was incredible for me because, you know, I, I started in the database. I started entering the gifts and doing the thank you notes. And I feel, you know, for someone that is eventually, you know, for me, hopefully leading a team at some point for um, a university, having that experience is paramount. I mean, I understand the, import, the, the true importance of data accuracy and how how valuable it is for a gift officer to come back with a new cell phone and pass that off to the, to the data entry person to get in the system. Um, because I was the person looking for that phone number 10 or 12 years ago. Um, my time at Berkeley was, was really wonderful. I learned so much from uh, my boss at the time, Marjorie O'Malley, who's now the VP at Mass Art, um, about how to be a good fundraiser. I mean, at the end of every single day, Marjorie was on the phone. She had so much on her plate um, as, a, as a manager and as um, a member of the president's cabinet there. But every day she was calling parents. She was calling alumni to get meetings for her next visit. And so it's actually something that I ta have taken forward through all of my, my roles is, you know, I begin the day by writing a donor and I end the day by trying to write or talk to a donor um, to keep, keep that at the heart of everything that I do. Um, but Berkeley was, it was an incredible journey because I got to see, 
the annual fund. I got to see leadership gifts. I got to see alumni relations. I was there for the entirety of Berkeley's first ever comprehensive campaign. Um, and at the end, it was it was time to move on. It was time to grow and be challenged in a completely different way. And, and BU really provided that for me. And so um, without maybe going too in depth on, on every stop, I, you know, one thing that stands out, right? You grew up in the Pacific Northwest, you come to Boston um, and you have worked uh, really in a concentrated area as you've advanced your career. You've worked at Berkeley, you've worked at Boston University, you've worked at MIT, you've worked at Phillips Academy, you've worked at Harvard, you're now at Brandeis. I mean, you've really um, had you know meaningful you know um, meaningful stints at uh, each of those institutions. I would be curious to know what are the commonalities working as a fundraiser at New England education institutions, and then also what are some of the real differences that you experienced at those um, at those institutions, which all have very distinct identities, distinct cultures even though they'd all be on a list of, you know, Boston area schools. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a good, good, good question to ask. And it's one that I've been, I've been thinking a lot about because, you know, having the experience at varied institutions is incredibly helpful. Um, I often get that question of, you know, you're, you, you seem to jump around a lot and, you know, perhaps a, a different way you know, to think about that is I'm really excited about opportunities and, and I really want to make it, make a dent and make a difference. And, you know, what, what I've seen in my time is every institution says, boy, are our constituents special? And what I can say pretty comfortably is they're all special and you boil it down to people are people. And so if you're raising money for Berkeley, it's, the same process. It might have a different scale, might have a different timeline or tone than a conversation you would at Harvard. But what you're trying to do is, is inspire people to think big and think bold and realize what place they can take in making a difference for others. Um, so that, that conversation could happen on the phone, in an email, in person at all of these institutions and really feel the same. Um, you know, the differences that are pretty tangible resources look varied across all of those organizations. Um, the, the size and scale of each team is pretty distinct. Um, I feel I learned a lot around how to be entrepreneurial, gritty, resilient at Berkeley that paid huge dividends for my time at Harvard. Um, that necessarily because of its track record and history and 380, you know, seven years of being around it might need some energy in that perspective of how it could think anew and try new ideas. So, you know, the, the theme that I boil down is, is, uh, is that people are people and that work looks the same, whether it's, it's Berkeley, Harvard or Brandeis. I love it. Really appreciate that perspective. Um, that being said, people are unique people. And I, I am curious when you think about relationships that stand out um, or memorable donor experiences, that you've had, you know, whether it was a unexpected success, a uh, crash and burn moment. I mean, what are, uh, you know, what are some of those, those poignant experiences that stand out? Yeah, you know, there's one that I feel like I, I learned a ton at. Um, and then there's one that like almost brings a tear to my eye every time I think about it. So the one where I learned the most was, this was back at Berkeley and it was probably one of my first you know, trips outside of the Boston area. And so I went down to New York to see a donor and I was 
super eager, super naive, um, going to wow him with my presentation skills and my ability to articulate the mission and the vision and the aspirations of the of the president and our faculty, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, but I had a really good conversation with a donor and, you know, made, made the ask for a high-end annual gift. And, and he said, yes. And I was incredibly excited. Um, it was a little bit of a stretch for him. Um, but he turned around and, you know, he said, yes, I'll do that. But I just want to let you know that you left money on the table and gave me feedback in real time about asking more questions. You know, I came in with a game plan of, you know, here's a $500 donor. Let's ask them to do a $10,000 pledge over a couple of years. And he happily said yes. And it was a, a really good gift. But what he taught me was to ask and listen. And presentation mode is dangerous because it doesn't give you that opportunity to ask the question. I love this example. Thank you for, for being willing to share because, um, first of all, it must happen all the time. And I think there's this dance of, you know, how do we provide a clear, specific ask rooted in historical patterns that would be a step forward objectively, right? Taking somebody from 500 to 10,000, that is real progress that when compounded over time can, you know, change lives. But at the same time, um, why 10,000 instead of 25, instead of 50, instead of a million dollars, it can be very arbitrary. Um, and so knowing what you know now, role play me a little bit. How would you approach that knowing you still need to get to a clear ask at some point? Or maybe you don't need a clear ask. Maybe there's a way to, to triangulate around it. Um, but, but how would you approach that now? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it is, it's a lot of leading with questions and a lot of just being naturally curious to the scenario of asking, you know, saying, you know, Brent, tell me about your support of Berkeley. What's inspired you over the years to give back and, and learn from your response. I don't know, you know, Stephen, I got the annual fund appeal that asked me for 500 bucks and I thought I could do that. So I did. Excellent. Well, I mean, those, th these types of gifts truly make a difference for our, our students and faculty. And I, I really want to express our, our deep gratitude for your annual support. If, if you're willing to go down a path with me, I'd love to explore a blue sky world. Let's say you have a magic wand and you could do anything for Berkeley students today. What would that be? Yeah. I mean, it can be a little circular because my, res my response might be, I, I don't know, Stephen, I don't even know what's possible. You know, what do you need? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And then it, it sort of organically leads, to, leads you to that place where you didn't need to present anything. You need to just have a conversation about goals and aspirations and, and elevate sites. And so, you know, the way that I approach these conversations now is, is asking those types of questions. What keeps you up at night? What kind of legacy and, do you want to leave for your children? And so let's say that we had gone through all of that and it allowed you to triangulate around a, a maybe even what you thought was a stretch that there was more there. Um, it sounds like in this specific case, you made a very clear ask. You've supported us at 500. Would you be willing to consider 10,000 paid out over a multi-year period? That would make you a part of the president's society, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, would you approach that with maybe, here are a couple of scenarios or one idea might be to consider something along XYZ level, um, 
you know, how do you kind of soft, like test something without it feeling like, well, I'm on the spot, you know, do I have to say yes or no? You're not sure if that would be doable for me. It's that balance of how do you challenge and inspire somebody, uh, but also not intimidate them or, you know, frankly, overshoot. Yeah. I mean, that, is, that really gets down to the art of this is, is the questions that you ask and how you interpret the answer. You know, what, what I might, if I were to go back in time, I might try to have this conversation as um, like in, in parallel with itself around his annual support. And then right next to that is making a splash. And so it is say something like, Brent, you know, it's so wonderful that you give back at the level that you do on an annual basis. Those flexible gifts empower you know, President Brown to take advantage of opportunities and ensure our best students have access to education. You know, but would you also be willing to explore how on top of that, you could imagine yourself making a splash on the campus with a six-figure commitment? And sort of try to have those conversations in parallel with each other. Um, that can be a really good approach because you don't want to cannibalize Rob Peter to pay Paul um, and divert those flexible funds. Um, so yeah, I would go. I would go back in time and say, you know, Stephen, stop talking. Ask more questions. Um, turn off presentation mode and turn on your ears. I love it. Uh, thank you for sharing. And yeah, that's definitely a recurring theme of just listen more. Um, but I do. I'm. I'm just so fascinated. Where you know, look. Ultimately, this is a negotiation, right? Philanthropy is. It, it is a business transaction. It is a negotiation, and unlike most negotiations where, um, you know, even when I think about like business software packaging, right. You could have your basic, mm -hmm. your premium, your pro, right. You get these features, these features, these features. The, uh, you're going to buy a new car, you know, do you want the XL, the XLT or this one? Right. And like you, you know, you can choose buyer what features matter most to you. And it's, you know, philanthropy is not the same, but we do try to, package up features and benefits and impact. And, uh, you know, there are days when I wish we just had like, pick your model, you know, what year, what make, <laughs> what model, what premium, like what impact do you want to have? And, and you, you know, you can outfit the car to your liking, but obviously we don't. No, but I mean, it's funny you use that as an analogy because I think it's changing. I mean, I, I, why, wait, I waited in that? line. I mean, I, I waited in line when Tesla first came out and, you know, I stayed up late. I remember the moment because I was at my, my wife's family's house and I stayed up till midnight pressing my button and putting my deposit down to buy a car I'd never seen, driven, touched. And, it, and I didn't, all, all of the options are essentially software oriented for the most part. Um, so it's a totally different experience now of, you know, or, it, you know, and, and might be into the future. Um, but I, you know, I agree. I think like the, the analogy from from your side of the table is one for us to really think about that it's you know it's solving pain points you know getting getting a, a, a software solution to help ease of gift entry or the acknowledgement process you know and the way that having the conversation with a donor is about helping them fulfill their dreams and aspirations so it's sort of it is a very similar conversation um and you know what what i've hopefully learned over my time is just to keep asking those big questions. Um, of course, we need the $10,000, the $25,000 annual gifts, but, but I, I want to have conversations that really 
inspire a donor so that they aspire to do something big and powerful and really meaningful for them to help them realize the kind of world they want to live in. Well, and I do think from a packaging perspective, you know, it can be, and, and, and scholarship is probably the best example where, um, look, Brent, 25,000, here's really what the impact could be on a regular basis. Or, or let's say the entry-level major gift is 100,000, and that kicks off 5% a year. We got 5,000 a year in perpetuity that, you know, roughly could go achieve X, Y, Z. At a million, 5% a year mm-hmm. kicks off 50,000, which is roughly one student per year, you know, fully supported or maybe not fully yep. these days, but, you know, in that scale where you could start to, you know, it, you can really frame it around how many students do you want to help? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How often? And here are ways you can help more students more often, one student in a fractional basis. And, and where, you know, where on the spectrum could, could you see yourself landing, right? Um, and, yeah, and I do think yeah. sometimes, like, we might take for granted that, like, donors literally don't know how endowments work. And I'm sure you spent a lot of time mm-hmm. on Endowment 101, or this is what, the difference between annual use and why an endowment could make sense and sort of how we manage that money. And so, um, mm-hmm, yeah, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I do feel like the more that we can frame it, an impact, impact connected to endowed fund kickoff, then you can maybe start, you know, reframing the conversation around impact versus arbit- what might seem like arbitrary ask amounts. 100%. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then I'd, I'd love to share with you the- Please. The, yes. Tell me. Yes. A really rewarding experience because it happened during COVID. Um, you know, this was, and, and it takes me back to, uh, one, one of the strengths that I think I bring to the table as a fundraiser and as a, a leader of, of others doing this work is, is the benefits of just being persistent and, and being able to you know, pick up the phone and make the call, send the next email, et cetera. And so this was an individual that I'd reached out to you know, nine, nine or 10 times, phone calls to the office, messages, emails. And what's the context? Is there a history or you just know that there's capacity? You're like, why did you have that much persistence to begin with? Yeah. I mean, it's partly because if, if, uh, you know, if I'm traveling on behalf of the university, I'm going to use their money as wisely as I can. So I'm going to fill up any available time slot. So this was someone who had been philanthropic in the past at a good level, um, you know, a five-figure annual donor um, that you know, was deemed as someone that, you know, is not a major gift prospect based on their responsiveness. Um, and for me, that's a sign that I'm going to try even harder. Um, and so I emailed them pretty frequently on any trip I took to New York. And this was um, in the in the fall, I think of 2018 at that point. Um, and eventually I got an email back from him saying, uh, you've been emailing my, emailing my son for the past, you know, seven or eight months um, he finally got tired of getting your messages. So he sent it to me and I'd love to connect. Um, and so I went down to New York and saw him at uh, his ophthalmology office. Um, and, and, you know, one of the questions that I, that I asked very early on in the, in the dialogue, you know, tell me about your Harvard experience, all the, you know, the basic qualification questions that you would. And then I asked that question of, you know, it's clear that you care about Harvard. You know, it's, it's made a difference in your life. You shared with me that, you know, you are where you are today because of your time as a student and the, the opportunity to explore yourself and what kind of impact you wanted to have on society. You know, let's put the, the dream hat on. If, if you could make a splash, what would that be? 
and you know he got up to the window, um, pointed to the school that he attended in Chinatown, um, turned around with a tear on it, you know, on his face, talking about how important his time at Harvard was and what a difference it made for him. Um, and so we had a level setting conversation about what a splash would look like that would be meaningful for him, for our students. Um, fast forward a couple months, I saw him again in New York along with his wife um, to continue that conversation. We were planting a seed about uh, sponsoring the first day of service for students um, and naming that gift so that all students could participate in uh, service in their freshman year. And then COVID happened. Um, and I circled around and checked in and um, wanted to connect and see how he was doing. I didn't hear back from him. Um, eventually, I got a, a got a response saying that, you know, he just got out of the hospital and and he wanted to finish the conversation that we started before. And when I first talked to him, it was pretty amazing. You know, he said, as I was there in the hospital with COVID, um, I wasn't thinking about you know, the watch or the car or the condo that I could purchase. I was thinking about the places that I wanted to make a difference for others. And, and Harvard is one of those. Um, and so for me, that was just incredibly meaningful that everything went back to that first question that I asked him and how important it is to position the conversation in an aspirational way, because, you know, the $10,000, $25,000 gifts continue to come. And, you know, he wanted to give at that level annually, but really setting the sights high made a, a tremendous difference. So the gift ended up being a um, million dollars to underwrite winternships for students between the fall and the winter, uh, the winter term for those that wanted to do service-oriented projects but couldn't because they had to go get a job to pay, um, to pay for their school or for their expenses. Um, so it was just one of the most meaningful, rewarding, experiences that I have, I've, I've had where I actually feel like I made a difference for him. And, you know, the responses back were just so incredibly meaningful to be thanked by a donor for making this possible. Just, you know, that lit the fire even more, you know, that's year 15 in this career for me. And that's reignited the, the energy behind why we do this. And that gift is going to carry forward for generations and generations that service is important. And this donor made it possible for me. So maybe I'm going to go out there and do that into the future. Um, so I always go, I go back to, you know, asking those questions, asking those questions about legacy and impact and they're incredibly meaningful and rewarding down the road. I love it. And, you know, there's so much there. First of all, what if you'd only reached out uh, seven times? Mm -hmm. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be talking about that donor and we have a ton of data via our work at Evertrue that says it does take six, seven, eight attempts to secure a visit, which to a lot of people sounds like harassment. Are you kidding me? If somebody hasn't written me back after five emails, I'm really going to send a six. And the answer is absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd love to just double click on that aspect of your philosophy um, because that whole story and the impact and the generations to come uh, of, of, of change could have not happened if you had only sent four or five emails, which most people mm -hmm. would think is, is a crazy amount of pestering for a donor. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you talk to any of my team members from Harvard or from MIT or even from BU that we're focused on leadership giving, the one thing that they took, I hope that they took from that experience is the what if. 
right? I'm going to, before I close my computer, I'm going to make that call because what if, what if this is that donor and this donor was that one for me and boy, did it make a difference for him, but even more for our students. Um, so I think of myself, you know, the average person gets what, like 24, 25,000 emails per year. Um, at work today, I think I got 150. So if you were to email me in the morning, in the afternoon and in the evening, all I would think is like, Brent wants to talk. Let me respond to him. I'm not going to get irritated that irritated with that because it's, you know, it's a, a passive method to get in front of somebody. So persistence matters. It, it, it matters. And look, there is a way to send nine emails and be incredibly thoughtful, persistent, personalized, like genuine. And there's a way to do mm -hmm. that and have it come across the wrong way, right? Where, where mm -hmm. it's actually counterproductive. But I do think, um, you know, that's really one of the real advantages we have when you're talking about somebody who has been philanthropic in the past. Even if it's a $500 or $100 annual fund gift, they care because most people don't even make that gift ever in their lives. And so the fact mm -hmm. that they did even once means that they cared enough. What an advantage that is relative to all of the other people reaching out to us in our inbox who we probably don't have any you know, authentic connection to. And so um, that all being said, it makes me wonder how many billions of dollars we leave on the table every single year in the world of philanthropy because we send two emails instead of four or four instead of eight. Um, mm -hmm. And so yeah. uh, we're not going to solve that today, but, but um, I, I'm, I'm so glad you shared that example. And I, I hope that folks listening, uh, that everybody sends one more email uh, at the end of the day uh, today as you're listening to this. Yeah, most definitely. You know, I would just leave, leave with on, on this topic that, you know, often I hear in, in partnering with gift officers that, you know, the strategy is I'm going to send this note and then hope that they respond. And hope is wonderful, but it's not a strategy. And so having that plan of action that you're going to take, like the seventh email that you're writing, craft it in a way that allows you to write the eighth. Keep the ball in your court and say in that message, you know, bumping this to the top of your inbox, you know, going to be down in New York, would love to connect. X, Y, Z, you know, are the dates. I hope these align with your calendar. I'll follow up, you know, come Monday if I don't hear from you. So being really intentional about the strategy leaves, leaves the door open for, for doing it in a very intentional and thoughtful way. Well, we're also huge fans of the breakup email as well, which is giving the donor an opportunity to opt out of the relationship, right? I think getting to a clear maybe or a clear no is where you want to be, mm. but it's that in between where we just don't get a response where I think countless relationships um, die. And I think that time is wasted. Um, and so even being able to say, Hey, Steven, it's Brent here. This is the seventh time that I've reached out and I don't want to bother you. My guess is you're not interested in reengaging with Harvard philanthropically. And, and I just want to give you the opportunity to, to tell me that so that I can, you know, allocate our time, mm -hmm. uh, you know, elsewhere and that you don't feel like you've got somebody chasing you down. And like, oftentimes somebody reads that and says, no, no, no. Like it does yep. matter. Like, no, don't close out this relationship. I've just been yeah. super busy. And so, you know, you, again, there's a way to do that and, and come across as way too aggressive. There are ways to do that, you know, tactfully. And I think it's the latter. I don't know if you Mm -hmm. have that as a, a tool in the toolkit, but I'd be curious to kind of get your perspective on that. Yeah. Candor makes a huge difference. So, I mean, putting that out there because, you know, acknowledging that your time on behalf of the university or the college or school 
is a resource that could be better used for students and faculty. And so putting that out there to say to, you know, to honor your best intentions and, and wishes, you know, please let me know if this is not something that you'd like to consider. Um, being, you know, being filled with candor, I think in every aspect of it makes a difference in the office and, and with donors, lead with transparency. Well said. All right, let's pivot a little bit and talk about the intersection of Web3, NFTs, philanthropy. What should we know? How did you go down this uh, rabbit hole that I am also now down with you? <laughs> Literal and figurative rabbit hole that all of this is. So I, my, my exposure to, uh, to blockchain and cryptocurrency actually came, it, it was probably a result of the pandemic. And you know, not having to worry about travel for work, not having to worry about commuting, just op gave me more time to explore things that were interesting. Um, and I remember this friend in college um, who had gotten into Bitcoin really early on. Um, and he probably would be like a billionaire at this point, but <laughs> I'm sure he sold it for pizza. Um, but my my exposure there was, was really just like of fundamental interest in... Uh, why am I earning on a personal note? Why am I, why am I earning 0.5% on the money that I'm giving to the bank that is then loaning it out and getting 14, 15% of loans? And they're doing it 10 times the amount that I have in my, my deposit in my account. Um, so I became sort of fascinated with the centralized financial system, which began the exploration of blockchain and, and decentralization. Um, and then just from like a, a functional perspective, uh, I, I found learning about cryptocurrency just really exciting. Um, learning about the function that that happens with the blockchain, the efficiencies that you can find with a with a ledger based system, um, and so I became really interested just as a, an active investor and and trader from that perspective, and then began to think about the intersections of philanthropy and this. I mean, lots of schools were starting to explore accepting Bitcoin as a donation, as an example. It's much farther than that right now. Um, and so just having these conversations and, you know, began to explore, you know, what, what it would look like for philanthropy to engage in this beyond just accepting cryptocurrency. Um, and so with a, with a friend up here in, in uh, outside of Boston, our kids go to the same, uh, same daycare. Um, and we were in the parking lot, at, you know, talking about what we do and our interests. And we aligned on cryptocurrency and, you know, we started to brainstorm what would it look like to replace the recognition system that we have with something that is on the blockchain, that is digital, that is carbon negative, that is unique, that is shareable, that's verifiable and saves tremendous resources for, for nonprofits. And so we partnered on this thing called My Giving, where we're, we're thinking of how we leverage NFTs and digital assets to thank donors. Um, the way that I like to describe you know, this in particular is, is taking the lapel pin that you get for joining the Planned Giving Society or the Consecutive Giving Society at your university into the 21st century. Put it, put it you know, on a digital shelf that you can share with friends and family that these are causes that I care deeply about. Um, so starting to explore that intersections, but, you know, even beyond that, I think there's just so much that could happen with blockchain, um, around philanthropy that just is incredibly exciting, like, a, a philanthropy DAO 
that, you know, is like the giving circle of 2022, where there's, you know, collective pooling of funds to really make a difference and, you know, put the voting power of that difference making into the hands of the people instead of into the hands of the few. Um, so I think there's so many exciting things that can happen with, with this intersection. It's sort of, it is the wild, wild west, though. So I would put that yeah. out there to you that it's, um, yeah. it's wide open. I had a friend uh, text me earlier today, should alumni associations be DAOs? Fascinating. Uh, literally at 1.36 p.m. today, and right now it's 2.49 as we're recording this. Um, and I, I mentioned, uh, you know, Nick Dukoff, who I know that you've been connected to now. He and I have riffed on this a little bit as well. Um, and, and, it's, and it's a balance because on one hand, you can make the argument why moving to a more I mean, in, in, a, in a certain regard, some of these alumni associations or, you know, you reference Harvard and the 400 years of history. I mean, they've sort of been operating in this model without the structure and without the blockchain backing it. But the spirit of it has been very consistent with that. Um, at mm -hmm. the same time, there can be terrible DAOs and great ones. And there can be mm -hmm. terrible alumni associations and great ones. And it's not really going to matter what is our legal structure and are we leveraging crypto or the blockchain, um, but it does make you wonder what the uh, you know future could be. I think the lapel pin one is a great example. The, the you know Chancellor's Society giving band uh, it, you know is a good example. What is a good example? What is the digital uh, you know version uh, you know version of that? And and so it's a uh, you know it, it's an exciting space um, at the same time. I'm sure, you know, if there are senior leaders or administrators thinking, wait, you're going to let the cats herd themselves by way of a DAO structure that is going to put the power of pooling philanthropy into the hands of, you know, our donors. Like we need to direct those funds centrally mm -hmm. to where, where, you know, where we need uh, the most help. And so, uh, you know, I'm sure that would be the, the obvious sort of objection. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree. But I think that the one thing that I, I try to hone in on, you know, just my approach as a, a member of a team is assuming positive intent. Our alumni, you know, at Brandeis, they love the institution. You know, they're going to make decisions that are in the best interest of the students and the faculty and the community. Yeah. Um, I love your, your uh, that idea of alumni associations as DAO because it is sort of like, you know, the nomination process for who's on the board that influences in what does the five-year strategic plan look like for alumni? Um, is that demo, are those demographics representative of the of the future of that organization? Um, that's a fascinating exploration. Well, um, if anybody here listening uh, wants to explore <laughs> that, you know, we are we are willing uh, thought partners for sure. Um, I, you know, I will say we are at a point now, right? It's early 2022 and we've seen volatility for sure over the last year in the crypto space, like just from a pure currency perspective. At the same time, we went through in particular last fall to beginning of 2022, incredible hype around sort of NFTs in general. Um, you know, Board 8 Yacht Club, if you're not familiar with it, you probably will be uh, soon at some point, which seems to uh, really have legs and they've just announced some work in the metaverse. And if you're hearing all of what we're saying and your, your eyes are glazing over and you're just super confused, um, that's okay too. But what I would say is I think we're getting to the point where if you are 
an advancement professional and you're listening to this podcast and you have zero dollars of your personal net worth in crypto, that's probably the wrong number. If you have zero exposure to NFTs, you're not sure what they are, you don't have a wallet, you don't even know what those words mean, that's probably the wrong level of exposure at this point. And, and that being like, don't, this is not financial advice, make your own judgment, but even going from $0 of Bitcoin to $10 of Bitcoin will be an education. And it is one that I think is worth having, even if crypto goes nowhere and this all ends up being a bubble in hindsight, you will benefit from the learning that goes along with it. Going from zero NFTs to a single NFT will require you to think and figure things out and uh, go through a process that is going to be very humbling at times. Um, but I think it is probably worth your while at this point in the cycle to at least know how to do those things. Um, I don't know, Steve, what's your take on that? 100%. And like if, if, you, if your institution needs a business case as to why to have this conversation, uh, Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund put out an incredible report on cryptocurrency. And you know, what they found is that cryptocurrency investors are more philanthropic. Their average gift is much, much higher. They are more diverse and they are younger. And so the demographics of the university that we're challenged with are younger and more diverse donors. And so look, we should the meet same, them where they are. For the same reason that your donors do not want to liquidate taxable uh, you know, stocks in a taxable investment account and then donate it to you. They want to donate it directly to you so that they can avoid the tax losses and that you can get as a nonprofit the full, the full uh, market value. That's the exact same thing that any donor who... Yeah. has crypto holdings wants to do because the taxable, uh, the approach to taxation is very similar. Yeah. The, the other thing that I would highlight that is a, a use case that's happening in, unfortunately it's happening in real time is the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And, you know, I woke up and realized, you know, this is happening and I want to do something from, you know, from Reading, Massachusetts. The fact that I'm able to transfer Bitcoin and probably it was like 97 seconds, send them $100, 97 seconds, my transaction fee was 39 cents. And now the Ukrainian government has an extra $100 to defend their country. Philanthropy is all about impact and taking action and making a difference and removing those barriers, removing, you know, the credit card fees, you know, 3% of that transaction would have gone to credit card fees. A certain percentage of that would have gone to the nonprofit that you know, would facilitate that impact happening. At this moment in time, that was the best decision. You know, nonprofits play such a key and vital role in, in making sure impact happens and it happens in a sustainable way. But this ability to make a difference in real time that is you know, um, fast and secure and scalable is like incredibly amazing. So, you know, I, I imagine a world where like your college experience, you know, your tuition dollars come in, you know, on a blockchain that you can see where those dollars go and trace them. You give a thousand dollars to the institution. They will say, this is exactly what it went for. And then imagine you graduate and your, your, uh, your diploma comes as an NFT. That is what we're going to see. Um, there's a, a home for sale as an NFT down in Florida. Um, you can build in smart contracts to NFT. So uh, 
an example just to to put out there is, um, you know, let's say you have a mascot that's pretty well known and you want to use that to raise money for a giving day. You create, you know, a hundred different traits, you know, there's rarity amongst that population. You raise that as a, you know, as give that as a thank you to your giving day. And in, in that you into the smart contract for that NFT, you build a royalty system back to your university. So in perpetuity, you have ongoing revenue, philanthropically oriented revenue streams back to the university that continue to make a difference. If that NFT is sold, transferred, exchanged. Um, I think there's, there's so many exciting yeah. things to explore in this space. Look, that- I, you know, I work with uh, the, the Brown University Football Association is something that has shaped my life. And, uh, you know, I'm on the board and, and working on taking our fundraising to the to the next level. And yeah, we, I mean, I've thought about that exact concept is what if you had like, you know, all the players over the years or every individual could, you know, mint their own um, NFT and, you know, but in order to do so, you need to basically, um, you, you need to buy it, right? And then that becomes a donation. And then mm-hmm. like, are we going to have a whole bunch of trading volume around Brown football player NFTs? No, probably not. Um, so, you know, at some point it's just not going to make that much sense, um, you know, on, on the trading royalty piece, yeah. but, yeah. you know, even from a one-time mint perspective, you can imagine um, there being an annual version of that. And then, mm-hmm. you know, instead of uh, getting the trinket in the mail, of you know, hitting 10 years in a row as a donor, it could be a special drop, you know, 25 years in a row and, and, and that you sort of get that combination of, um, you know, public and private uh, verifiable recognition. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, Brent, you're hitting it on the home with um, the co-founder Karthik. This is the exact conversation we're having. And the reason for doing this is to empower more philanthropy to happen, but doing it in a way that, that is, you know, verifiable, unique and special to the donor that actually puts more of their their gift to use because you're not producing a calendar or a, tr- a tchotchke or a trinket or a bumper sticker or a mug. You're, you're sending that digital recognition that they can verify, you know, sharing a way that's verifiable on the blockchain to say, I am a part of this community and you should join me. You should, yeah. there are other people like us making a difference here, you know, be, be a part of it. Well, after our trip down that rabbit hole, there is a chance at this point in the episode, it's just you and me here. That being said, uh, I have two last points. One, in our notes that we had uh, part of the questionnaire prior to you coming on today's episode, uh, I was informed that you had nine days left in your MBA program at Syracuse. So is that still the right number or... It would be eight days today. Eight days. Yep. Eight days Nine today. Days. <laughs> uh, so just tell me about, with, with everything you've described, why go pursue an MBA? Biggest lessons learned. And uh, for other folks that are listening and thinking about continuing education um, and they want to be a leader in, in the advanced world like you are, uh, how should they think about the MBA as a possible part of that um, path? Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, for me, it's that, it's that commitment to lifelong learning. You know, I already have a master's degree, already have two bachelor's degrees, you know, why not go for another one? Um, but really, I, you know, it's the professionalization of the industry. You know, I want the business acumen. I want to speak that language so that I can lead and be the best advocate for whatever organization I'm working at. Um, so be able to speak the finance of, of donors, to be able to partner with university leadership in a way that I can add value from a strategy perspective. Um, 
the way that I can think about, you know, my ethos as a leader and a manager, what is that? What is my approach? What model am I building upon? Um, so all of it for me was really personal. You know, I knew early on that I, I wanted to get an MBA at some point. It was hard starting at 40, <laughs> you know, with life, work, kids, et cetera. But man, I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. You know, one thing that I'm really excited about is for my son to see me graduate. You know, at, you know, that's not something that I would have imagined to happen, but I hope that makes, you know, him proud, but also lets him know that this isn't something that stops, you know, learning is something that continues on even, even when you're uh, a 43 year old. <laughs> well, congratulations. It's a big milestone. It's a lot of work. Uh, and, uh, and, and I'm really glad, uh, especially on the point about your, uh, your seven-year-old son. So that's really, really uh, good stuff, Stephen. Um, okay. Concluding thoughts, you also, you know, um, happen to share just a point about the founding values of brand, brand uh, the fa- founding values of Brandeis, focused on access opportunity and social justice, which is what the world needs right now. Uh, and so my question for you is, um, are you hiring? And for people listening who want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, we, we definitely are um, at, at all kinds of different levels from the coordinator level in the um, the major gifts team for donor relations, um, for the advancement services side of things. So reach out to me at Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-R at Brandeis.edu. Um, Brandeis's founding values, it's one of the reasons I joined the team. You know, what happened after George Floyd's mur- murder um, and everyone started talking about social justice. Brandeis has been doing this since 1948 and it's in the ethos of the university. So we, we live that, that mission. We believe those values and you see them, see them every day. So it's an incredible place to work from that perspective. And we are, we are definitely building a team for the future. So please reach out. Love it. Well, hey, it's really good to reconnect uh, after being on this journey together for 11 years now. Uh, and I hope many years to come. Um, congrats on all of the momentum if you want to check out what Stephen was referencing uh, around crypto and some of the exploration of the intersection of philanthropy and the blockchain, check out mygiving.io uh, and reach out to Stephen. Super responsive on uh, LinkedIn. And uh, you just heard from him that if he doesn't get back to you right away, just send him nine or 10 emails and he cannot possibly get upset given his philosophy <laughs> around that persistence. Stephen, thank you for joining me today. Excellent. Thank you so much, Brent. Cheers, everybody. Brent signing off with today's guest, Stephen Rodriguez, AVP of Development at Brandeis University. Take care.